So, uh, we are finishing, gosh darn it, part four of what I thought was going to be one night, so I'm sorry about that, um, of the tough issues and topics about women and, and seeking women as powerful uh, um, individuals in the kingdom and, and part of ministry. And uh, so, at the turn of the, of the year, I was like, I'm going to do, you know, a few topics like, you know, challenging questions in the Bible. I had no idea I'd go on to like these like part fives and six of like healings and demons and women, but I'm going to take a pause on that whole idea for a little bit and get back to some other stuff that's kind of passionate in my heart about um, maturing in the Holy Spirit and our next growth and what I kind of feel is in our place here. But if you were looking forward to like the topics of predestination and Calvinism and all this stuff, I'm going to like leave us all for uh, several months and I would love to have coffee with anybody who wants to talk about that stuff. I'll come back to that later at some time. But I think that probably this is the culmination of that um, what was in my heart to come to the scriptures and actually come with actually my, my deepest fears. When I started the, the topic of demons and the topic of why don't people get healed and what is the actual role with women, when you stare down really tough scriptures, like those were things that, that really had captive my faith, that I wasn't really confident about all the Bible, that there are certain parts like, yeah, and then other parts like, well, we'll just skip that, you know? And so what I wanted to come in through this process was actually to take those things head on and uh, so tonight I have like two like awesome nuggets like to share with you guys that I'm like so pumped. And um, so we're on the final series of the final night of the women series. And to catch you up, uh, why have we been in this for four series? Well, there's a lot of things that we learned. And we learned that the Bible needs to uh, be held in context of both other scriptures and other times and the other meanings. And it's very complicated. We also learned about the contextual settings of culture. And when we looked at what Jesus did with women, we realized that Jesus was like the greatest women's liberation movement ever that we just take for granted. We're like, oh, that seems normal. You know, we pass on by. And so we went through that. And so then we also looked at you can't universally, um, literally apply every passage in the Bible all the time. There's actually certain passages that they're meant for specific situations. So we need to be liberated from that because so many Christians for the longest time held the Bible and pointed to God wants us to have slaves because the Bible had a verse that says, slaves, honor your masters. That God speaks narratively to situations, but doesn't mean literally I want you to do that. And so we've kind of gone through this awesome journey of understanding how to handle the word and not be afraid of it. And so last week we looked at 1 Corinthians, which has two of those really thorny passages about women. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about one more of those and then uh, the really tough one in 1 Timothy. And so what we learned about last week is that Paul is talking to men and women. It's not just addressing men about how to suppress women. And we got instruction from Paul that he was talking to women about prophesying. And it's really hard to prophesy with nobody listening because the passage there in 1 Corinthians says, women should not you know, speak up. Well, he's commanding the women to prophesy. So what do we do there? You know? So we talked about that and how the context of the time was for order and also that the women should cover their heads um, and not have shaved heads. Why? Because having a shaved head symbolized that you were a cold prostitute for Aphrodite, you know, and, and so that God was inspiring Paul to say, women, I want you to be powerful, but don't let the cultural context take the power from your words. And we also looked at how uh, the scripture says that every man is ahead of a woman, about how we learned that in the Greek language that there is not a word for husband and male. There's only one word for both. And so 
we, we looked at this, the scripture in context and saw that Paul is actually talking about marriage, that husband is the head of a wife, which is totally different. And he talks that there's neither husband nor wife that are separate, they are together. And also within that, it says that the husband is the head of the wife as God is the head of Christ. And remember, we looked at, at like, well, what did God do with Christ? Well, God elevated Christ above all rule and all authority. So if you want to act like a godly husband, you elevate your wife as God did for Christ. So we, we helped redeem a lot of that scripture. We also looked at that Paul wrote nine letters, and in six of them, he liberated women, and in three of them, he restricted them. And the three letters he restricted them, he said, do not, well, I'm sorry, Many times he said, share this letter with other churches. The three times he restricted women, it was absent from the instruction of sharing with other churches. So that's where we left off. Are you guys with me? All right, here we go. So we left off at this really tough passage. This is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 and 36. The women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be subject themselves just as the law. Everyone say law. Just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? We have a major issue with this problem of this passage. Remember what Paul, like his biggest professional credential was? It's that he was a Pharisee, right? And Pharisees, they were experts on the what? The law. And so here, Paul is saying, just as the law says, women are not to speak, but are be permitted, uh, I'm sorry, but are to be subject to themselves. Now, a Pharisee, just to remind you, they have memorized the entire law. There is no mistaking what the law says. Now, here's our issue. There's no Old Testament law that says women are not to speak. Right here, the Bible says, women are not to speak, but are subject to themselves just as the law says. And there is no Old Testament law that says that. Oh, dear father, what do we do? <laughs> I'll try and answer that in just one minute, but let me give you the most common explanation for this passage. I'm going to give you what most people are going to say about this passage, and I'm going to give you what I, I believe it says. Um, most people will say that Paul is restricting the church because it was a chaotic church. That in 1 Corinthians 14, that Paul is actually restricting a lot of people, and it sounds like chaos all the time. But right before Paul restricts women, Paul restricts two other people. He restricts, he restri restricts, restricts uh, people who speak tongues without a translator, and he restricts people who want to jump in with their own revelation while somebody else is speaking. This is in chapter 14, verses 20 and 30. It says, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So he's telling a lot of people to keep silent. Now, obviously, he's not inferring that everyone should never talk. He's obviously not saying that. He's trying to bring order. And so what most scholars will say about this passage is that Paul is trying to bring order to chaos. And that the church of Corinth was made up of all these pagans who would go to temples and have crazy sex parties as worshipped Aphrodite, like kind of nuts. Um, and they worship these female deities and female deities play this dominant role. And so in the temples there is really chaotic. 
And so in this context, it seems that women were behaving in church as they were in the temple and were likely interrupting the preacher while he was speaking. Have you ever been to like a movie with somebody and like, like, so who's that? What, what are they doing? You know, you're like, shh, you know, who's that guy? You know, like, he's like, I'll tell you later. You know, so some people think that Paul is basically saying, stop interrupting the pastor and wait. If you ever go to a movie with Eric, he's the worst because he tells you what's going to happen. He's like, oh, that, that person's the murderer. And you're like, you just ruined it for me. Like, and he doesn't, he hasn't seen the movie before. Um, also, most scholars believe that they had two kind of grandstands inside the church. Not grandstands, but, but a separation where men were on one side and women were on the other side. And it was believed that the wives would be like, husband, husband, what does that mean? You know, they would like yell across the aisle, make a lot of noise. And so Paul is uh, addressing disruptive women, those who were being disruptive, to get their answers answered at home. Um, and the empowering part of that detail in this passage is that Paul still wants women to be taught by their husbands, which in of itself violated all Judaism culture, where women could not even speak publicly to a man. So here in this restrictive passage, Paul is saying women should be taught, but they should be taught kind of in an orderly place that's non-disruptive. Now, there are a few, everyone say few, there are a few problems with that um, specific interpretation. One is that there was a lot of unmarried women in the church of Corinth. Um, so that passage doesn't really address like the single women either. It also assumed that men were more knowledgeable about the scriptures and therefore could answer the questions. There's inherent gender bias to who was more um, intelligent about the scriptures there. But however, when reading the entire letter to Corinth, it was obvious that men were just as ignorant as women were. And three is that this does not address the issue that says, according to the law, women should not be able to speak because there is no law. So what do we do with that? We either have to chalk it up that Paul had a big brain fart about the law and just kind of move on. Or we have to conclude that there's actually something else going on in the scripture that we need to find. I submit to you that verses 34 and 35, the restrictive part is Paul quoting men who are writing to Paul to try and restrict women. Look at this way. Let me give you the same passage, and we have it color-coded in two different ways. The first color, um, there it is. The first part is where I believe is the question and the, the quote, and the second part is the answer. Look at this. The women are to keep silent churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church. Second part. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Do you see the response in 36 to the other part? If you read that on together and we didn't have that space there, these two things make no sense. You're like, Paul, what's with the ADD here? Like, what does that even mean? And when we understand the first part of the question is, a, is a, basically a quote, the second part makes perfect sense. The first part's restricting women. And then Paul says this, was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only? Right here, Paul is addressing the machismo, macho, male-domineering paradigm. 
And when he says, was it from you that the, word of, that the word first went forth, or has it come to you only? Basically, he's saying, did you yourself author the word of God, or just merely was it only meant for a male only? <laughs> Essentially, is that's what he's saying, is where it's saying women are not allowed to be able to speak. And he says, oh, really? Are you the author of the Bible? Or is the Bible only meant for you? And Paul basically says, are you, are you saying that biblical teaching is only supposed to be for men by men? Ha <laughs> ha, that'll never ever happen. Kind of not. That's exactly what's happened. We've taken these two parts and we've, we've put Paul's instruction onto where he's quoting because I don't think that Paul forgot that the law says that women ought to speak. We know Paul is the expert on the law. He's not going to make a mistake like that because he trained his entire life to know every scripture passage. And when we look at his response, we know that he is referencing it. Well, how do we really know? I got one more for you on this. There are two reasons to believe this is true. The first is this, is that there's a little Greek word. It looks like an N with a little squiggly thing over it. It's pronounced A. Everyone say A. A. I have no idea if that's the right way to say it, but that's what my little Strong's Dictionary pronounced it as. It's, I don't even know what it's called, but it's, it, it's pronounced A. And this is referred to, are you ready for this? The expletive of disassociation. I think you need like three letters after your name to exactly know what that means. But essentially, this little end with squiggly appears several times and is used, are you ready for this? As an emotional rebuttal to express Paul's disapproval to what was just said. Paul always uses this A, everyone say A. A. He always uses that when refuting the previous point. And the closest thing that we have to this is like, what? Come on, dude, seriously? Like that's the closest thing that we have to this. It was one of those things like if, if someone was to record us, I'm like, come on, dude. And then someone like translate that like 1500 years later, they'd be like, uh, what does that mean? You know? So this is what the come on dude of the day basically meant. It can mean what? Nonsense? No way. And it always prefaces passages in which Paul refutes a silly, outrageous, or crazy idea. Here are a few examples in 1 Corinthians, the same book we're studying, where this A comes. I'm going to tell you when to say it, all right? 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 14. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? A. Everyone say A. A. And he basically saying, no way. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for that guy and that other dude. I don't know how to say those two names. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not the saints? A. Everyone say A. A. Nonsense, basically. Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 19. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her body? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Nay, A. Everyone say A. <laughs> do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? Are you catching the role of that? I say nay because Scarlet's all about horses right now. So <laughs> nay works great for me. 
But Paul uses this A to denote silly idea, rebuttal, and my reaction. And do you know where else A is found? Between verse 35 and 36. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. A. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Is this making sense? So here we have two of three restrictive passages brought forth and examined. I I believe liberated. There we go. And I believe that when you look at the context and you understand the Greek word in rebuke and recognize that Paul did not forget the law, this passage that seems to restrict women is actually Paul saying, what a silly idea. You either need to be okay with Paul restricting women or making a huge blunder that he says the law says this when it doesn't. What do you want? But when you recognize him refuting it, it makes perfect sense. It's funny that even back then, that people are writing to Paul, quoting the Bible that they think things that are true that really aren't true. Isn't that funny? Like my biggest pet peeve is like people who um, make up things that the Bible really doesn't say. Like everything happens for a reason. I'm a sinner saved by grace, all that other stuff. You've heard me rant on that many times before, but um, therefore I think we can stand firm on this passage. I think we can look at this passage and these tough passages on women. We actually can say, we can examine this and we can know exactly what's at place there and not be afraid of it. But that's not the passage that is the most thorny for women. All right. So that was my first nugget. Isn't that cool? The second one is the passage that is the most complex and tricky of them all, and it's the most widely used one in restricting women. It's 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but remain quiet. Now remember, we always need to know the larger context to these challenging scriptures. So first, why don't we like rewind and go to the beginning of 1 Timothy and let's find out why is he writing this letter to Timothy in the first place? Maybe we can find the clue there. 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command, look at this, certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Notice the irony right here that Paul is like saying, they think they know the law, but they don't. And yet in the other passage, we have Paul seemingly making a mistake on the law. I'm telling you, he did not forget. So what was the command for Timothy? What was Paul writing for? Did you catch it? Not to do what? For certain people to teach. What specifically were they teaching that he wanted to restrict them from? false doctrines. Did you catch that? What other things was he restricting them from? Their devotion to myths and genealogies. These certain people, he said, do not know what they are talking about. So what was Paul correcting? Everyone say false doctrine, 
myths, and genealogies. So that is the first clue that we have in the purpose of the letter. Now let's read the specific restrictive passage in larger context. Are you guys good and with me? All right. First, all the women are like, yeah. All the guys are like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. There's so many women on the, this series. It's been like, I'd love to see you guys all again later when we're not doing this. Okay. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify with self-restraint. Anybody like, holy cow. There's like four things that one of these things doesn't fit with the other. You know, like there is a lot in there, right? Let me point out four things that seemed really interesting. Women receive instruction in a very specific manner. The second was the restriction on women over them teaching and having authority over men. Then we have the story of Adam and Eve. And then we have a mention about childbirth. Sweet. So what was Paul correcting again? Remember it was? False doctrine. What was the second one? Myths and genealogies. All right, just keep that in mind. Now remember, Timothy was the leader of the church at Ephesus. And remember, we studied that the three cities in which Paul is restricting, restricting women, they all worshiped female deities. And Ephesus was the home of the Greek goddess Artemis, a combination of both the virgin goddess of the hunt and the Anatolian goddess Cybele. And that was associated with the earth and fertility and all these things. Um, she was also known as like the great mother. And Artemis had a crown on her head symbolizing female rulership and had eggs surrounding her midsection. Now, when I first saw this and before I first saw this, I was like, whoa, the goddess has got like 13 boobs, okay? <laughs> and actually someone like texted me like, should I um, like censor out the image tonight? I was like, no, they're not boobs, they're actually eggs. And um, so it's totally, totally fine. So um, <laughs> I was totally thrown off by that. So, but Artemis was the goddess of fertility, right? I mean, we should censor that stuff. Those are eggs. Those are eggs, people. Everyone say fertility. Now that I've lost the whole entire audience. This is great. I'll wait. Get it out. All you third graders, I know. Okay. Sweet. Okay. So Artemis, not the goddess that had 80 boobs, but had eggs all around her midsection. Stop it. I'm done. Um, was there symbolizing fertility and childbirth and would bring protection for childbirth. Now, infant mortality back then was around 15%, some people believe, and maybe even higher sometimes for the mother. And what was happening culturally is women identified themselves with the Greek goddess to give them protection during childbirth. That's their culture. That's their goddess. That's what, like, you know, people, women, and children are dying. And so they needed a goddess to come in and protect them. And so what Paul is saying is that at the last part, because it kind of seems like, you know, if a woman gives birth, she's going to be saved. That isn't, that's weird. No, what he's saying is that uh, your souls are saved by God. 
Whether you live or die, God has you in eternity and you are preserved. But God also looks over you and he will guard you and protect you in childbirthing as well. Basically refuting and basically clarifying the cultural norm of a Greek goddess bringing on protection. The first part, verse 11, that a woman must receive quietly instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, the thing we didn't catch there, right, is that in Paul's time in Judaism culture, women should not be taught at all. So still, this passage by itself is radical according to Judaism culture and is liberating. So we can't forget that. So this is a biblical principle that still, as Paul is writing that, should be getting him stoned in his own culture. But the issue that we have there is the word submissiveness. And the word submissiveness here is this Greek word pronounced hupatage, right? We will forget that and never know that, but it's important that I say it and try and pronounce it. And basically, it means to be in subjection or can simply mean obedience. It just means obedience, meaning women ought to obey biblical instruction. In other words, be responsive to truth. Women, when you hear truth, be affected by it, right? There's nothing that's gender specific here that's, that's picking them out because women are to be in subjection to the instruction, not the instructor. There's no mention of an instructor, as we see, but the instruction, which is a, a principle that we all should live by, that the Bible is the truth that we should have be the authority in our life. And so basically he's saying that we should, or specifically women here, but I believe he's meaning for everyone, that the truth of the Bible, we should receive it and we should respond to it and we should obey it. It just means obedience. In fact, this is the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians that says that they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel. Are you guys with me? So he's not saying anything novel about women there. So, we, so I don't know why it's translated like submissiveness, but it basically says, women, like, be obedient to truth. Nothing, any novel thing there. But remember what was Paul's original intent for the letter is to correct teachers of false what? Doctrine, myths, and what? Genealogies. Okay. I'm coming back to that several times for a reason. You'll see why. Verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by the woman being deceived and fell into transgression. Now this is the key cornerstone to Christians for maybe hundreds of years restricting women. But there's a few suspicious things about this passage in light of Paul's other writings. When you read this, if you're familiar with how Paul writes other letters and other things he says, like a bunch of things should like jump out at you with this. We know there's something wrong here. The first is that he brings Adam and Eve into the equation. This is highly unusual. Paul, he mentions Adam and Eve three other times in the entire New Testament, in Romans and twice in Corinthians. And it's only ever in conjunction with portraying our new selves in conjunction with Jesus and who Jesus is. It's always this liberating reference. It's always this, we are new. He's always forecasting what Adam was for Jesus to come. And so for Paul to bring up Adam and Eve here is highly unusual. Why? Is that he also brings up original sin. And Paul, when he talks about original sin, he says that you are dead to sin. 
He's like the great champion, like, we are free indeed from Christ. There's no one new, Jew or Greek. We're all new in Jesus. And he's like the guy that is the one that's saying that sin is dead. But here we have Paul, the great champion of that, saying that sin is here and in the story, Adam and Eve. And it's almost like he's bringing up Adam and Eve to correct almost like a doctrinal confusion issue here. And Paul makes specific he makes specific detail of the order of events in whom was born first. Notice that he's like kind of oddly specific, like it was first Adam. We're like, oh, I wonder if he's like almost referring to genealogy here. You see where I'm going? Now, the key issue in this passage is that women may not exercise authority over a man. Exercise authority over a man. And the Greek word here in question is, this word is called authentian. Everyone say that, authentian. One more time, authentian. And it's translated in the modern NASB as exercise authority over. Now, this is the single most restrictive passage against women in the entire Bible. Now, let's look at other Bible verses that use that authentian Greek word, okay? Um... There's only one mention of this Greek word in the entire Bible. Authentian is in one place in the entire Bible, and it's this passage. We can't triangulate this meaning any other ways. It's just this one. But guess what? There are 12 other words in the Greek dictionary that also deal with exercising authority. And there are a staggering 47 other Greek words that relate to rule over or govern over, synonyms of authority. You math geniuses know that that equals 40, I'm sorry, uh, lame. I didn't do great math. You math geniuses, obviously on me, can calculate. That means that Paul had 59 choices when he's going to use a word about authority. And it chose one that is nowhere else in the entire Bible. Now, Paul is a linguist, right? Again, he didn't have a brain fart about the law, right? And if he's like, I'm going to use the one Greek word that's not found anywhere else that'll confuse the snot out of people for generations about authority. And he's going to use that one in the most restrictive passage against women. There's got to be something else going on here. But I believe it's under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that he, he chose to use that word instead of something else. So let's investigate this word briefly. Originally, authentian meant to murder with one's own hand or to commit suicide. And as time went on, authentian uh, evolved to mean to originate something with one, one's own hand. It's actually where we get the term author and authentic, authentian. You guys follow me? Author and authentic. That's where we get our words. And so the word during Paul's writing of this letter, again, first century, Paul wrote these letters in first century. I believe the primary purpose of this, looking at the evolution of it, was to mean authorship. But wait, our Bibles say exercise authority over. Now, how did that happen? 
Now, we have, do you notice, like, you hear, like, the different words that make the Webster's Dictionary, like, selfie made it in, like, this past year, you know? Like, we, we're, like, we're adding new words to dictionaries, and we're changing the way that words are defined and, uh, and described. And so this has happened as well. Let me point out a few interesting facts. So first century, right, is when Paul wrote this letter. Fourth century is when we had basically all of the, um, we had our first full manuscript and the old Latin Bible. And it was translated this way. I permit not a woman to dominate a man. Authentium. I permit not a woman to dominate a man. Now this is 300 years after Paul wrote this, okay? Now fifth century, 100 years later, what happened to this word? The century Vulgate says, I do not permit a woman to domineer over a man. Fast forward 1,000 years into the 1500s and 1600s, the Geneva translation and the King James translation evolved to say, I permit not a woman to usurp authority over a man. And then the 1900s, basically, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. This is like Darwin's like evolution for Greek words here. <laughs> Are you seeing this? We have a word that originally meant to commit suicide with your own hand. And it's suddenly, like 2,000 years later, it's meaning exercising authority over a man. Now, there's a few different books I can give you guys references. I just want to mention Discovering Biblical Equality and I Suffer Not a Woman. Um, those are two great books that they take an in-depth look at this word and the evolution of this word. Now, remember, there's a span of 300 years, right, between when Paul wrote the letter and when we got the, the manuscript, Right? And so they dissect the grammar used in the context of Paul's words. And when authentian is used in a possessive genitive way, it implies not only sovereignty, but get this, it also implies to claim ownership. Translated this way, we get, I do not allow a woman to teach nor proclaim herself author of a man. I do not allow a woman to teach nor proclaim herself author of a man. Now this makes a whole lot more sense when we read what comes right after it, which says, for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. And it was Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Are you guys with me? Now remember, Ephesus worshiped female goddesses, female deities, particularly Artemis. And the practical results of worshiping a female deity meant that you elevated the feminine above the masculine. And it's such that some women would try and assert their status as women to dominate over men. And in Greek mythology, this is really key. Artemis appeared first before her male counterpart. What was Paul correcting again? False doctrine, myths, and genealogies. Paul is correcting the prevailing paradigm of the cult, which elevated women simply because they originated first. Additionally, the notion of the original woman Eve, right? So we worship, you know, if you're in, if you're in Ephesus, you worship female deities, right? And female deities are immortal, they're awesome. And so the notion that the original woman in the Bible committed sin must have been crazy perplexing and totally foreign to them. And it would not be unexpected for the Ephesians to try and make Eve a goddess. 
But Paul is putting Eve on our level, saying she's a woman capable of sin and resisting God just like us. And as we see that Paul is simply correcting the doctrine of sin and the order of creation in the Bible against the prevailing myths of the culture. You guys catching this? I know we're like in the weeds, but if we can get through this, we like liberate a crazy passage here. So I submit to you that in light of culture, context, and the reason for Paul writing the letter to begin with, and the obscure Greek word that Paul uses, and seeing the evolution of that one word that signifies all restrictions, seeing how it evolves, it seems that Paul is saying, I don't permit women to claim as if they originated all mankind. And then he goes on to correct and give us the story. So let me close with this and let me summarize what the background is. Women were seeking protection from the Greek goddess against childbirth and sickness. Those Greek goddesses were elevated above males and appeared in Greek mythology before males. Artemis appeared before her, the male counterpart. And the Greek goddesses were thought to be the originators and the authors of men, since Artemis was the goddess of childbirth and fertility. And Greek goddesses were immortal and did not sin. Paul is correcting what? False doctrine, myths, and genealogies. The doctrine that I believe Paul was correcting was the doctrine that God created man and woman, not some female deity. Woman is not the author of man, authentian. Woman is not the authentian of man, is what he's saying. And the doctrine of Eve, he's correcting that she is mortal, not immortal. She's not a goddess. And the doctrine of original sin, yes, sin and death came through even a woman and then to Adam. And the myths and the false genealogies. Paul is correcting that Artemis does not preserve you and heal you through childbirth, but God the Father does. And genealogies, that he's correcting that Eve came from Adam, not the, uh, yes, not the other way around. Adam came first. It's so weird that he oddly brings that forward. So um, I believe that's what Paul's doing here. When we look at all the variables and all the details in, we can understand it. So let me summarize and end with this. If I were to rewrite Paul's letter, knowing what we know now about Greek mythology, knowing what we know about the woman with eggs all over her body, <laughs> knowing what we know about that Greek word about what is meant, knowing that he wants women just to be affected by the truth, let me read to you what I think in our modern day words that he meant to say. I believe he's saying, you powerful women, I have truth for you, but you need to hear it and respond to it because it is the truth, not a myth. Please do not teach the myth similar to the mythology of Artemis that women authored and originated men. Adam did not come from Eve. Correct doctrine states that Eve came from Adam because it was Adam whom God created first. Also, Eve was not a goddess and not infallible. She was nothing like the Greek goddesses you have worshipped for so long and indeed fell victim to sin and death. Finally, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and childbirth, is not your protector for childbirth. God the Father is. And knowing the truth will give you great strength and faith. If Paul was here today, I believe that's what he would say. Now, probably the most important reason that we need to know that women have the authority to teach is because Camille Knopf is here next week. So. 
And that is it.